Let's now turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we'll read the first 18 uh, verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the opening words of this uh, chapter, we hear uh, the language of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. And uh, we are taught in this passage that uh, the eternal Son of God is co-creator uh, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And we might also hear echoes of Genesis continue. We know that in the creation account, God said, let there be light. And in the verses before us, we are taught that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light of men. The true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Yes, the Apostle John here is declaring Jesus Christ, uh, the living word who reveals the glory of God. He is this matchless divine person who became flesh, who took upon himself, in other words, our very own nature, and dwelt among us. He came into the world that he had made. He came in history. And he came to a specific people. He came unto his own. And at his coming from the very beginning and down to this day, he met with different responses, opposite responses, responses that are drastically different one from the other. Both of them are amazing in their own way, even as those responses continue uh, to this day. Each of those responses are cause for amazement, but amazement of a different kind, as we'll see. But we want to consider how our text proclaims those different uh, amazing responses uh, to the coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of the light meets with amazing response. And we begin by looking at verse 11, and we uh, consider that his coming met with the amazing response of rejection. That's a description of unbelief described there in verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. You might think that this language of rejection sounds a bit strong because it's not really used in our text. It simply says there that, that they did not receive him. But it's not too strong. It's not too strong if you consider who it was who was manifested, who came to his own, and who it was then who also rejected him, who did not receive him. might be able to illustrate that weakly by comparing that to the difference between uh, not receiving a stranger into your home with not receiving your brother or your sister. If you don't receive a, a stranger into your home, uh, that might be uh, due to a lack of hospitality or, or distrust or for a variety of, of reasons, perhaps some of them reasonable and uh, perhaps some of them not so good. But if we don't receive a brother or a sister who comes to our doorway, that's a different matter altogether because a dear and near relative us has a much stronger claim upon us a much stronger claim upon our attention. This close relationship that they have to me requires a kind of response that honors and respects that nearness. A brother, a sister has a special right to my loving welcome. And so to not receive them, that involves a kind of rejection and a denial of all those claims that they have upon us. As I said, that's a very small illustration of what our text uh, teaches about our Lord's coming into this world. We might say that it's bad enough that the world uh, didn't know Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. But we also need to appreciate that even in the Gospel of John, and in John's language here, the world does not simply refer to uh, the pagan world outside of Israel, who never was confronted with the Lord Jesus. But the world in John includes unbelieving people who saw the Lord Jesus and who witnessed his miracles and who heard him speak. That's clear from the seventh uh, chapter of John where uh, Jesus did not go up to the feast and his brothers, uh, in, a, in a sense, ridiculed him and insinuated a kind of pride uh, when they said, if you do these things, show yourselves to the world. And we're told the reason of that response. His brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. And there in the context, Jesus is describing the kind of response and reaction he anticipates from fellow Israelites as he has already experienced a kind of rejection from, from that world of unbelieving people. But there's a progression in our text when it says he came to his own. He not only came into the world that he had made, but he came to his own, his own, his own domain, his own, uh, his own people, his own home, you might say. Because Judea, Jerusalem, and more specifically Mount Zion, the temple, 
these were all his in a special sense. Because really their, their meaning, the significance of these places centered on him as the one who recreates a people, as a one, as one who recreates a people for God's dwelling place. They were his own people. He was their Lord and their King. They were of his own family. He came to them as a brother, as one raised up among them. To put it differently, we might put it like this. Their Bible was all about him. Remember what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but these are they which testify of me. Because Jesus is the seed of the woman who was promised way back in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the, the king priest like Melchizedek, a king of peace, the king of righteousness. He's the lion of Judah. He is the seed in whom all the nations of the world uh, would be blessed. Yes, there were years and years of preparation, and it was a preparation for the world. There were years of preparation for the world, but this preparation developed in the history of Israel. And those promises of Jesus... For the world, I just referred to the one given to Abraham, they were revealed especially to Israel. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul uh, deplores the unbelief of the Jews when he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And you know that that, that description of Paul also is true of the Lord Jesus. They were his brethren. They were his countrymen, according to the flesh. Then he goes on, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Describing there the tremendous privileges of Israel that put their unbelief against this backdrop of light and privilege. And it shows the darkness and the evil of their failure to receive the one who was born to them in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And, and we ought to hear that as amazing. Astounding. It's not just a, a statement of fact. As we've seen, it is a, it is a testimony, isn't it? To the, the, the depths of human depravity and unbelief when confronted with the brilliant light of the revelation of God in Christ. We ought to also hear it as a description of the experience of Christ. He suffered this rejection. He was despised and rejected of men. From the beginning of his perfect life, the very circumstances of his birth communicated that. No room in the end, in the end. And the world power that heard of his death uh, sent out a murder squad in order to take away his life. And he was only spared by fleeing to Egypt. And his own people eventually judged him unfit to live. They preferred a condemned 
a convicted criminal in his place and they cried out for his death. And isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that after so many years, after so many years of this, this light shining so brightly in so many places, in so many countries, leaving its trace, even in the literal lights that are hung up and that shine in the darkness of our present culture, that light is not received and recognized for what it is. And the name, the name of the Lord Jesus for so many thousands of people is nothing more than a curse word. Amazing rejection of the Creator God, the light of men. But then we move on to consider, secondly, amazing reception. In verse 12, it says, But as many as received him. But here's a contrast. Amazing guilt is followed by amazing grace. And we ought to see this contrast as something amazing, as something exceptional, as something remarkable. Because the fact is, and it is yet today, that unbelief is most characteristic of fallen and depraved people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's true as well today. In fact, in the third chapter of John, it says, This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And that's no less true today than when those words were penned, describing the response of the world largely to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here is something amazing, and we ought to see it as amazing. We ought not to be surprised when unbelievers, when people of this world, reject the message of the gospel. We ought to be saddened by it. In a sense, we ought to be dismayed by it because we know what a treasure it is to know the Savior. And sometimes new converts can be a bit dismayed and discouraged because they expect that when they tell others of what they have discovered of the way of life and forgiveness of sins and hope and purpose and meaning and truth, that others will recognize it for what it is. And they can be astounded at the indifference, the coldness, the utter lack of interest, or perhaps even a hostile opposition. And there's a sense in which we ought not to be surprised at that. We ought to be surprised when people hear it and receive it and take an interest and want to know more. You know what that, what that also means? It ought to be, means that we ought to be surprised at ourselves. And we ought to ask the question, what makes me to differ from another? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come? It's the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, or else we had still refused to come and perished in our sin. It's the grace of God that makes the difference. And it's actually presented here in a in such a, a lavish way, isn't it? As many, as many as received him. And we know that that as many includes however many they may be. There may be. And whoever they may be. And whatever their circumstances. 
And the gospel accounts indeed reveal that among those who received him, there were despised uh, tax collectors and, and women of the streets. There were some rich people, many poor people. There were respectable people, and they were demon-possessed people. There were some who came as families, some who were brought in as individuals. And even in the Gospels, we realize that those who received him included some non-Jews to make abundantly clear that this right that John is speaking about is not based on any ethnic or any kind of national distinction or limitation whatsoever among those receivers. And this response is given in the most simple, simple terms that we ought to take note of. As many as received him, they didn't do anything to win God's favor. Uh, they, they didn't, they didn't prove themselves by some moral standard first. They didn't meet some test. They didn't achieve some goal. They received him. That's another way of saying they believed in him in a very personal way. They believed who he is. They believe that he indeed is the light of the world. They believe that he is the promised Savior. They saw his grace and truth, the truth of God shining out in him, in his words and in his actions. They believe that he was the promised son of David and son of God. And they trusted in his grace. They took his words into their hearts. And as many as received to them, he gave the right to become children of God. And let this text, and let this language of our text also settle uh, this, this question or any doubtfulness that some might have about the appropriateness of this language of receiving Christ. How must people respond to the gospel? Well, the Bible describes that in very many different ways. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And they ought to heed that command and submit themselves to it. They ought to obey the gospel. They ought to believe it. They ought to repent. They ought to trust in the Savior. And another biblical way of describing how people ought to respond to the message of Christ is that they ought to receive the Christ who is offered therein. Right? That's the language of the canons of Dort. They ought to receive him. They ought to abandon their life of sin and unbelief. And every other comfort, every other hope, and look to Christ alone. Actually, it's, it's language that, among other ways of describing faith, says something about the simplicity of it. Teaches that faith is not an achievement. It's, it's like the open hand that receives a gift, the open mouth that receives food. It's like a look of faith. It's the vision of, of faith that recognizes the truth of Jesus Christ and looks to him in the same way that those Israelites bitten by these deadly serpents looked to a brass serpent. And in looking, they were healed. Or how about another one? We're given, we're given uh, language uh, that describes faith in, in Luke chapter, chapter 6. Or actually, it's uh, Luke, uh, Luke chapter 7 where it says that the whole multitude, the multitude that, that heard his words and saw his acts, includes those who were tormented with unclean spirits, 
It says, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. To touch him. Isn't that what this, this, uh, woman who had this, uh, this flow of uncleanness, right? This, this constant flow that is so easily comparable to the flow of our own depravity that nothing can stop, that renders us unfit to worship God, unacceptable to Him. And with this constant flow of uncleanness, she thought within herself, if I can just touch the hem of His garment, I'll be healed. And Jesus felt uh, power, virtue going from him and asked, who touched me? And she came trembling and explained and confessed that she touched him to receive his saving healing power. And he says, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Isn't that a beautiful description of, of the exercise of faith? It's not a literal touch for us, but it shows that it is the movement of our souls in the reality of our need, the reality of our emptiness and helplessness and inability to save ourselves, to reach out this hand of faith, to open our mouths, to look with our eyes to Christ, to receive Him in all the fullness of His Saviorhood into the emptiness of our sinnerhood. Such it is. It's amazing grace, isn't it? It's the miracle of grace. In fact, the next verse makes that so abundantly clear, where it says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, this exercise of faith is not something that leads us to extol, extol the power of choice. No, it leads us to extol the power of God. And the power of the Holy Spirit to give new life, spiritual life, to give new desires, to make people want to come to the light, to give new fears and new conviction, plus grace that taught my heart to fear, new aims, new love, a love for God and a love for others. All these things that are totally foreign, totally unnatural, totally impossible to us in our Sinful, fallen nature. That which is flesh is flesh. Must be born again. And you see, the wonder of that is that wherever there is faith, this is the explanation. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God has been born of God. That's the, that's the language of, of First John, uh, chap, chapter three. It's actually five verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. There's no other explanation. You see, rejection of Christ is what we all do by nature. But the reception of Christ is the exception caused by sovereign grace. And that leads us finally to consider the amazing result here that's described. Grace brings a twofold change or transformation. A transformation into God's likeness as children. Uh, because being a child of God, um, and that is a very prominent theme in, in John's gospel and in his letters, it involves partaking in God's likeness. So there is a connection between the new birth by the Spirit and this privilege of being God's children, because it does involve new desires and aims. But actually, the emphasis of verse 12 is not upon inner qualifications, 
it identifies the, 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 the source of this change that brings about faith in Christ. But it doesn't really elaborate on that. Rather, it's upon the right which Jesus gives to all who believe. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, For as many of you, or rather it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that involves a glorious change, not, not only in terms of, of uh, our, our character, an inward transformation, but what's emphasized in this passage before us is a glorious change of status, a change with regard to our relationship to God, from who we are by nature as children of wrath, even as the others, to children of God. That involves regeneration, but, but legally, in terms of our status, it involves adoption. Adoption by Jesus Christ. Because he bore the wrath of God that we deserved. We were children of wrath. Christ took that wrath upon himself and removed it from us. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He gives the rights he obtained for us. He gives believers a new status as children of God. And that is a status that doesn't change. It doesn't waver. It doesn't even increase. We increase in likeness to Christ somewhat in this life. When we see him as he is, then we will be like him. But in terms of our status, in terms of our relationship to God, there's no variation with that. It's constant. It's certain. It's settled. It doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't get better or worse with our own ups and downs. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit, who imparted new life, is given to uh, dwell within us as a spirit of adoption and to abide with us forever, to keep us praying, keep us trusting, keep us receiving and believing. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God, through Christ. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We're adopted into this eternal family. And all this is to those who receive him. And that leads me to ask the question of everyone here this morning. Have you received him? Have you received him? I might ask another question that goes like this. Who are most like the Jews to whom Christ came when he was born in Bethlehem? Who are most like the Jews to whom Christ came? We consider their great privilege. And we have to answer this question. Those Christians especially those who are born into a rich heritage of the faith, whose parents were uh, Christians, whose grandparents were Christians, who were baptized in their infancy, who were taught the Bible from their earliest years, who had all these privileges of the fullness of God's revelation now in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have heard preaching week after week. They are most like those Jews to whom Christ came. And what that means is that we are reminded that all these privileges in themselves are not enough. They're not enough. 
unless by the grace of God they lead us, each one individually, personally, to receive this Christ for ourselves, to ourselves, to receive him as the light, the light of the world, as the light without whom our lives are in darkness, to receive him as life without whom we are in spiritual death, to see, receive him as, as our strength, without whom we have no strength to live the Christian life, to receive him as our hope, without whom we are without hope, to see, receive him as our righteousness, without whom we have no righteousness in which to appear before God. It is to receive him in the fullness of his saviorhood to the emptiness, the condemnation, and judgment of our sinnerhood. If you have so received him, give praise and glory to God. This is an amazing thing. It's amazing grace. And if you have not yet received him, there's something else amazing. And that is that if you turn from your sin, you turn from yourself and receive this Savior, believing in his name this morning, this hour, now you receive this right to be the child of God. Amazing grace. Praise God for making us part of his new creation in Christ. Praise God for making us joint heirs with Christ, certain of an eternal inheritance by grace. Amen.